Welcome to Life Extension. Life Extension is my series where I interview the scientists and pioneers of longevity. We're investigating the new frontiers of longevity for people and planet. This episode's guest, Aubrey de Grey, is probably the most prominent person in longevity. I'm thrilled to have him, and he's going to lay out the landscape, what it was like in the early days, and how it's all evolved. Outreach to you, it's been on my mind for quite some time. I did not dare, actually, to invite you to my series, because I figured I ought to sneak my way up the mountain. There's many paths to the top of Mount Fuji. And it turned out the very first person I spoke to in this latest season of my podcast, it was Reason, I believe, who said, oh, you're talking to me? No, you should be talking to Aubrey. And I thought, well, okay, fine, then let's do it. And you accepting my invitation was timely because in every conversation on longevity, which is in the formal setting of these interviews, I've so far put about a dozen of them into recording and we haven't released them all yet, but there are about a dozen of them and there's professors and entrepreneurs and just straight up visionaries. It always comes up that the body is like a car that gathers damage over time or not. Now, is it just uh, a story that people pass along that this comes from you and that this is the most compelling and straightforward way of thinking about aging over time? Well, I have certainly been using that analogy for a very long time. So yes, to that extent, it comes from me, though I don't think I really originated it. But no, I think it's a very good analogy. The reasons why people say that it isn't flawed. There are two main reasons people say that it is. One, they say, well, the body's so, so, so much more complicated, you know, we don't even have the plans, you know, it's just like, but that's no answer at all, because it's only a difference of degree, right? It's like, you know, it's more complicated, but only finitely more complicated. And the other thing people say is, well, the body repairs itself. They say, you know, we've got all this stuff built into us that gets rid of damage as we create it. And of course, that's true. But two things are important about that. Number one, the only reason we age at all is because that built-in automatic self-repair machinery is not 100% comprehensive. There are certain types of damage that the body generates as a consequence of normal metabolism that we don't have mechanisms to repair as it happens. And that's what accumulates and eventually makes us sick. But the second thing is perhaps even more important that the fact that we have this automatic, this rather good arsenal, not comprehensive, but very good arsenal of automatic built-in self-repair actually makes the job of the biomedical gerontologist easier. It means that all we have to do is, you know, fill in the gaps. The body is on our side in this. The body's trying not to age. It's just that it needs a bit of help. Well, it's trying to survive. I mean, what's interesting, so I, you know, my background, philosophy, cognitive science, and the theory of these things, and, you know, the way that you put it about the, well, you know, is aging just the car falling apart, or we don't even have the plans, or, well, what does self-repair? I mean, this very clear way of describing the debate. It reminds me of the early Darwinians. So, you know, just after Darwin, oh, yeah, you know, life couldn't possibly have evolved. It's far too complicated. We don't even have the plans, la, la, la. It's not any kind of mechanistic system. And now here we are talking about a similar analogous point. And I guess there's camps on one side and the other. Am I to understand, just to stick with this philosophy, that you are saying, hey, listen, life's amazing, but it really just boils down to the stuff we see in nature and the stuff we see in physics. And 
the way a car might age and fall apart over time. Yeah, that's it. I mean, life isn't some kind of mysterious, magical thing. Aging is not something magic. It's really just some stuff getting older over time, accumulating some deficits, and there you go. I mean, is that, are you kind of giving us like this common man on the street, the Clapham omnibus? Is that the way to understand your point of view? It really is, yes. And I would go so far as to say it's not just my point of view. I may put it, you know, more simply, but no one who works on the biology of aging really disagrees with this, that the body is a machine. It's a really, really, really complicated machine, but it's still a machine. And that means that its function or its progressive loss of function is determined by its structure, by its molecular and cellular composition and structure. And thus, that the better we get at repairing the body, in other words, restoring that composition and structure to something like how it was in young adulthood, the longer we will be able to postpone the health problems of late life. Okay, the, no one would disagree with what you just said. Yeah, that's true. But there are other things you say that some might disagree with. Go on. And it's a system and it functions and it falls apart, sure, and it might have some repair systems, but they're not good enough. Yeah, I think people would say that. However, maybe they might further say there are built-in programs that have some kind of higher purpose, evolutionary purpose, making way for the next generation, making way for something, or they haven't yet been selected upon because they're just flaws in the design. This has certainly been said. In fact, you mentioned people not long after Darwin. One of those people was a very well-respected biologist named August Weissmann in Germany, and he was the first person to really think and, and write about the question of why aging exists from a Darwinian perspective. And the way he put it was just like circular, but more or less it was the first exposition of the idea that we have aging for an evolutionary purpose. In other words, that even though at the level of the individual, aging is bad for you, nevertheless, at the level of the survival of the species and the survival of genetic information, it's good for you. That idea survived pretty much unchallenged for decades, largely because Weissman was terribly important. And the first person to say, well, hang on, this is nonsense, was a British immunologist named Peter Medawar in 1952. He said, well, hang on, hang on. I mean, obviously, you don't need aging for the purpose of getting rid of older animals, because even if it were good to get rid of older animals, which is another question, the thing is, older animals are got rid of perfectly well by other things like predation and starvation and hypothermia. And you hardly have any animals that are actually exhibiting any functional decline in the wild. He actually took it too far. So in fact, the only reason that we have different rates of aging in different species is because there is actually some functional decline in the older end of the spectrum in the wild. Well, but now that you mention it, I mean, old age is nobody's biggest problem in nature, is it? Not biggest problem, no. But to the extent that it's any problem at all, you know, if you've got a herd of animals and the predator's going after them, right? The predator only has to catch one of them. So, yes, you're going to have an increasing mortality rate towards the end of the actual population distribution within a wild population. Or the very young. But, okay, I take your point, which is overclaiming it that there is no aging at all in nature. That's overclaiming it. But the thrust of the point. The point is yeah. what this leads to, and this was understood very much by Medouard and refined thereafter, is that aging is, uh, so the person who's put it the best, actually, the guy is my great friend Len Hayflick, who um, made, of course, important discoveries in the 1960s, he's still alive. He um, said, aging is a consequence of evolutionary neglect rather than evolutionary intent. So what he means by that is evolution doesn't want us to age, but it doesn't care enough about whether we age or not 
to have actually bothered to do anything about it. Uh, well, not to do enough about it. So what I was saying earlier is basically no species ages fast enough that most individuals die of aging before they die of predation and starvation and hypothermia and so on. Well, you die of other stuff. Evolution's kind of busy selecting for those that die of all the early things and then the aging things. It, it hasn't gotten around to those yet, I guess, is the, the way of thinking. It makes sure that we age slowly enough that we've probably died of something else before we die of aging and that only a minority of the individuals die of aging in the wild, right? So that means that, for example, top predators definitely age more slowly than species that are further down the food chain, simply because they're not going to be eaten, right, for a long time, or if, if at all. Therefore, they will be able to pass on their genes more, to a greater extent, to the next generation by staying alive and not aging, not dying of aging. And this has been understood since at least the 1960s. Then it gets a bit more complicated when you look at what's called antagonistic pleiotropy, which was a concept that was first put forward in 1957 by a, an evolutionary biologist named George Williams. And it's now often you know, phrased in different terms that are more kind of molecular. It's normally called the hyperfunction theory now. Basically, what it says is that some of the things that evolution hasn't got around to doing constitute not developing additional systems to do things that you know, would help us accumulate damage more slowly, to repair damage better. But rather, it's the opposite. It's failing to develop systems to shut down systems that were useful early in life. Early in life, of course, we're doing a very different thing than what we are in adulthood. We're growing. We're you know, doing development. And there's lots of genes and genetic programs that are needed then that are not needed later. In order to, and by default, what's going to happen is those programs. So repair versus pruning. So now we're on pruning. Let's prune some of these growths that are no longer helpful. Or systems that are. Don't say versus there, because that's a bit complicated. Let me oh, I both. So, um, yeah, the, the issue here is that these additional programs, if they keep running, well, they won't be needed because development is over during adulthood, but they may be actively harmful. Now, what does that active harm mean? What it means is simply that they cause damage to accumulate a bit faster than it otherwise would if the program had been turned off. So there are certain diseases, for example, the type of muscular dystrophy that is caused by the failure to turn something off. This is something where the consequence of not turning it off is really bad. I mean, really bad. It causes a proper disease that is progressive, but rather rapid. And therefore, sure enough, evolution has developed a mechanism for turning this particular gene off at the end of development. And the disease comes from a congenital condition where the mechanism that turns it off is broken, and therefore it isn't turned off. There may be other cases where something that was happening during development is also bad, but it's not that bad. It's not bad enough for evolution <laughs> to have got around to doing anything about it. A good example of this is there's a, a part of the skull uh, called the cribriform plate, which is a kind of porous thing that allows the cerebrospinal fluid to be recirculated. And, and this circulation, this porosity of this particular part of the skull is necessary for the clearance of molecular waste products of certain types, in the, like, for example, amyloid beta. And it turns out the cribriform plate keeps growing, or rather, well, the bone that it's made of keeps growing, and the pores get smaller. It basically gets less porous. And so there's a company that, I don't work with them exactly, but I know what they do, called Leucadia, that's looking at exactly this problem and actually considering doing surgery on the cribriform plate to restore its porosity and thus restore the circulation of the, of the cerebrospinal fluid as a potential way to treat Alzheimer's disease. 
So this is an example where pretty clear that this is antagonistic pleiotropy. But again, it's evolutionary neglect, not evolutionary intent. And above all, whether or not it's intent or neglect doesn't really matter. What matters is it's damage accumulating faster than it needs to. Let me just play the, um, the groundskeeper here. So we started with the basic theory of aging, the car accumulating damage. Now we're inspecting a few other ways of thinking about it, which are actually pretty consistent. You know, I mean, it's a system that develops. It's got some repair systems. Maybe they go haywire. It has some systems in development. Maybe they go haywire. These are all things that over the duration can lead to problems. And we call those aging. That's a family of disorders, which I guess, you know, in the fullness of time lead to death, more or less. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now that we've done our, our philosophical section, I, I wanted to come all the way back to just to you, because like, if there is a figure in the longevity community that really just comes right first for folks, I don't know, that read Wired or go to Burning Man, because <laughs> it's always you. I mean, when I speak to longevity folks, and this may or may not be surprising, they often tell me a story about how at age 14, they got really into longevity. They realized life was short, and now the only thing that mattered was duration. Can you tell me how you became the sage of longevity at a time when it wasn't fashionable? Well, okay, I guess I won't try to dispute your use of the word sage. I do try and go out there and make a difference. But how I got here? Well, I mean, basically it happened because I, um, I've wanted all my life to make a big difference to the world, to like improve the quality of life of humanity. That was from childhood. And my initial field was computer science, artificial intelligence, because when I was 15, I started programming, found I was good at it, thought, okay, well, you know, this is where my talents lie. But I always knew, even from uh, my earliest days, that aging was, first of all, a, you know, by far the world's biggest problem, the one that caused the, by far the most amount of suffering, in contrast... Everyone has it. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, almost everyone has to go to work and spend a lot of their time doing stuff that they wouldn't do unless they were being paid for it. And that's the problem that artificial intelligence is designed to solve. Well, one of them anyway, that's the one I was focused on. So in that sense, artificial intelligence is a research endeavor that goes after a, a really big problem for humanity. But the problem of health is considerably worse than the problem of work. So I always knew that. The thing is that I didn't think that I had any particular reason to um, expect to be able to make important contributions in biology. Because, you know, I mean, I wasn't particularly bad at biology when I was in high school, but I certainly, you know, I didn't feel that it was my thing compared to programming. So I forgot about it until I was about 30, tw late 20s. I met and married a biologist. And she was a lot older than me. She's 19 years older than me. And she was on sabbatical in England, actually, at the time. That's how we met. Uh, and through her, I, you know, obviously, I learned a lot, of, lot more biology over the dinner table, like you do. But I also gradually began to notice that we were never talking about aging. And I started asking questions. I would ask, like, you know, well, are, you, um, are you not interested in aging? And she said, no. And I would say, why not? And she would say, well, it's just decay, isn't it? You know, what fundamental truths about the universe are you going to discover when studying decay? And I would say, well, well yes, sure, but it's bad for you. And she would say, well, that's not my problem. And I would say... It kind of is, you know, and that would be about as far as we would get. That was really the kind of conversation that led me to understand the fundamental difference of mindset between basic scientists and technologists, which I had, had not appreciated until that time. The basic scientists are trying to find things out for the sake of finding things out, and any humanitarian benefit is kind of not their problem. So the technologist is always trying to find ways to develop systems for improving 
the human condition, despite the fact that... Describe the world versus change it. Well, that's right, yeah. And, you know, so technologists like myself are trying to improve the human condition in one way or another. And we're doing it in the context of a very incomplete body of knowledge about the system we're trying to modify. So it's all about trying to sidestep our ignorance. Whereas for a basic scientist, the concept of sidestepping your ignorance doesn't compute because they're finding things out for the sake of finding things out. Um, so yeah, I began to understand this. And I also began to realize that it wasn't just my wife, it was all the biologists I was meeting through her. Uh, they had the same kind of view. And I started looking into what was being done in the biology of aging, and I found that actually, contrary to my assumption, it was very poor. You know, there was very little happening. It looked very much as though people who were studying it were also treating it really as a phenomenon to be a bit like seismologists. They know that the thing they study is bad for you, but they have no aspiration to actually do anything about it. Stop it happening, you know. Well, they think it's impossible. They think it's impossible to change, right? They think it's a fact about the earth or a fact about the universe. If she goes to cosmology and she says decay, you know, just the law of entropy, she's saying, what do you want me to do about it? Well, it was worse than that. I don't think that biologists, even back then, like my wife, were getting confused about the second law of thermodynamics because they understood perfectly well that, you know, organisms only live as long as they do by being very, very good at exporting entropy into the environment. So it doesn't know the second law doesn't apply. But still, you know, it wasn't interesting to her, which is a different matter. The dinner table is what got you wondering. And I guess you were sitting across from a person you knew very well that was sort of the representative of the establishment on the latest and great. Well, I mean, and you're, you're exactly right. I mean, here we are. It's a moment where longevity and anti-aging even as a term are things that people say. But 30 years ago, they just weren't words. I mean, aging is not a disorder or a condition or anything. It's just a adjective. Or, you know, I mean, it, it was just not a phenomenon under study in a real way at that time. And now all of a sudden, it's a big thing. Right. I mean, there were a, there were a few people who would talk about it as a medical problem. But you couldn't possibly talk about that in a grant application. So what happened? So, you know, you've been, so the sage, it's unfair. I mean, well, part of what I'm getting at is that in the community on longevity, there are certain sort of identities that I've observed, you know, and there is certainly like the guru, the sage, the wise man, that's kind of one of the ways of being an expert on, on longevity. And in terms of pure aesthetics, you might be a little closer to that particular idea. But then there's another one, which is like, you know, David Bowie, the kind of the perpetual teenager, they've got, you know, blonde hair and a sweatshirt on or something like that. And no matter what their age is, and they're kind of somehow they found the fountain of youth, there are these people who speak and act that way. And then there are these kind of visions of the future type folks that are kind of like hybrid, digital, technological type humans, uh, maybe Kurzweil is kind of in this realm of all the and, and so I'm curious what your take is on the landscape of, of thinkers and identities about longevity, because I know it's very shallow to talk about the kind of costumes that, that people adopt. But it, I think it also speaks a little bit about the the, the gesture or the, the, the direction that they have in mind. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so for me, you know, my first 10 years in the field, well, certainly my first five years, perhaps seven, were focused on the science. I was like starting in about 95, after I switched fields, I was focused on developing, on first of all, trying to figure out what well, for those who are listening, fill us in as you go through the story here. I mean, so, you know, from writing software to actually being in this field, tell me, what did it mean specifically? You know, is that when you started growing your beard, 95? Did you take a new job? <laughs> it was actually the time I started growing my beard, but that was a coincidence. I didn't take a new job. No, I was rather lucky. I had in 1992 
taken a job at the University of Cambridge that was actually in the same research group where my wife had taken a job because she, she was a full professor in San Diego when she came over on sabbatical. But when she decided to stay and we got married and all that, you know, you had to get a job. And she was always someone who really enjoyed actually doing the bench work. And she also had always really very inexpensive tastes. So she was perfectly happy taking a job with a negligible salary. She'd always, you know, been able to earn far more than she actually spent. So she took a job as a junior technician in the lab of a professor at Cambridge who was an old friend of hers. So a full professor from UCSD That's right. takes like a research gig in Cambridge. That's right. And not even a research gig officially, a junior technician job. In practice, she was basically, a, from the beginning, a kind of glorified postdoc who was like imparting wisdom without actually needing another job. But yeah, that was what she did. And it was because of that, that this same guy, this professor who had given her this job, and who was an old friend of hers for, for the past previous like 30 years, or 20 anyway, he was starting a bioinformatics project. And he hired me to do that. The reason I took the job was because it was very, very undemanding. It gave me access to all the university facilities. It was very boring, but it, was, it gave me all the access and a reasonable salary. So I could basically just do my AI research in my spare time, because I had plenty of spare time. So when I decided, OK, I've got to switch fields because the biologists are just not doing the proper job on aging, it was just a matter of repurposing my spare time. It was very handy. And that was in about 95. So remember, we're talking about the journey to either Sage. That's right. So, so between ninety five and two thousand, I was basically learning. I was getting known. I was I was publishing, you know, well received ideas and so on. But I was really just still figuring things out. And then in two thousand, I had this big eureka moment in the summer of two thousand, understanding that damage repair was going to be far easier than slowing down the rate of damage creation, which was a complete paradigm shift for the field and took another ten years for anyone to really cotton onto it. I mean, look, I'm just an amateur, but you put it that way. And if you said that was a signature thought of yours in that period today, the immune system and what goes on, it's like the center of all activity in thinking about longevity and age. So if this was a brainwave of that moment, yeah, and if I don't want to overdo it, you'll be modest about it. But yeah, go on. Repair. Be too specific about the immune system. This is repair in general. And it was a divide and conquer strategy, which was part of the reason why gerontologists at the time found it difficult to take on board, because they basically decided they were looking for a unified theory of aging. That's now history, but it took a long time. I see. Okay, yeah, yeah, like cellular regeneration, even in the anti-senescence stuff. So everything from the very, very small all the way to the bigger full systems on repair. Okay, I got you. So yeah. by about 2005, I'd basically done all of that. I'd fleshed out all of the various aspects of it. I'd published a rather large amount, and I didn't really have anything more to say. And I was starting to come to the attention of the wider world. So I gave my TED Talk in 06, for example. I gave my first big profile on me was in Fortune magazine in 04. And so I basically shifted very largely from doing science to doing advocacy and outreach. And obviously, I already knew that I was, you know, outspoken and charismatic and so on. But I didn't know the extent to which that would work, you know, in terms of inspiring people. And the more I did it, the more I found that I was actually rather good at inspiring people. And <laughs> So did you walk over and ask uh, Richard Dawkins what he thought, or that was inappropriate at the time and context? I definitely met Richard. Um, he was one of the slower people. Well, you know, people of his generation, you know, it, it was very much a generational thing. The older scientists had the greater difficulty, with some glaring exceptions, such as Judy Campisi, who is Dawkins' age almost, but who is, who was the very first scientist to completely understand what I was saying. So I've been doing advocacy ever since then, and I've just, you know, done my best. And it turns out to have been fairly effective. How do you land then in, in those three categories, or how do you think of the landscape, right? When you think of the folks that are out there, 
explaining these ideas, but also giving energy and um, support for those that are at the front lines, pioneering some of these new things with the big frameworks, but then also just the energy. There's the sage, there's the, the fountain of youth teenager, and then there's like the, the, the cyborg. Yeah, I'm not sure I really go for that. I think that if you look at the main advocates out there, the main people whose voices are widespread, then it's very hard to, to identify any two of them who are, have very much in common, to be perfectly honest. You know, so I'm out there, you know, I've got my authority from the fact that I made... Well, then, okay, no, no, but let me interrupt you. Let's not personalize it and make it into comments about other people. Rather, maybe the question is, because what I was really getting at is, one version of it is, you're using technology, or you're using clean living, or you're using a perspective about the way the body works. It's kind of what I mean about the sage the teenager and the scientist, yeah. That's yeah. different. So, I mean, you can kind of look at it in the way that Kurzweil writes about it in his first book on the subject, for, um, um, what was it called? I can't remember now. Fantastic Voyage, that's right. So he talks about these three stages of the technology of dealing with aging. First of all, the stuff you can do today, which is kind of the clean living part, but also, of course, you know, supplements and nutraceuticals and so on. And then there's basically my stuff. So biotechnology but pretty you know, futuristic biotechnology, you know, with stem cells and gene therapy and so on. And then there's uploading and merging man with machine and so on, which is more his thing, but which he describes as, you know, bridge three, I think, is he, he uses the term. So, yeah, I mean, there's those categories, and obviously different people work in different areas. I very much focus on bridge two. What's your take on this first family then? I mean, if longevity has become very topical, yes, in the elite community of folks that have the resources and the knowledge to invent things and build new companies. Sure, they're working on, on gene therapies and they're working on biological age and, and you know, they're, they're, that's where they are. But out there, uh, the shopper on Amazon or on the dark web is trying to get metformin or, you know, NAD plus or whatever. I mean, just give me a flavor for, and, and there've been many false, you know, alarms with the, the polyphenols and resveratrol. I mean, I'm, I'm just curious what you think about interventions in general, clean living in general. Like what, what would you say you might endorse as pretty good handful of things or is the whole, is it all just schlock? Uh, I'm, I'm curious for your, your take on the field. It's complicated, certainly. So there's one whole category of things we can do today, which are called calorie restriction mimetics. In other words, things that trick the body into thinking that it's in a famine when it isn't. And the logic of this is famine seems to make people make, make animals live longer, and um, therefore it'll probably make humans live longer. And unfortunately, humans like eating, so a drug that tricks the body into thinking it's not eating when it actually is is pretty cool. There's a variety of theomimetics, of course. Metformin is supposed to be one in one way or another, so is carbo, so is resveratrol. I would say at this point, probably the one with the greatest claim to efficacy is rapamycin and its analogues. The point is that these drugs are also theomimetics, which means that they induce, to whatever extent, the same kind of changes to gene expression and metabolic behavior um, that is induced by actual famine. Now, that means that you would be very, very surprised, and it would be basically impossible, if any theomimetic were able to achieve a greater amount of postponement of the health problems of late life than CR itself, actual not eating much, right? Unfortunately, that's a big problem. And this is a problem that people have kind of known about for ever. And I was really quite appalled at how much it was being swept under the carpet by my colleagues. So I published a rather angry paper on it in, I think, 2004. What I'm saying here is that calorie restriction itself works much, much less well 
in long-lived species than in short-lived species. And this is very straightforwardly predictable from evolutionary theory, because all it really comes down to is the fact that long famines are less frequent in nature than short famines. And therefore, they, there is less evolutionary pressure, less selective pressure to evolve and maintain metabolic responses to long famines. So basically, irrespective of your natural lifespan, you are going to have responses you know, that, will get, that will extend your life by about the same absolute amount, rather than the same proportion of that natural lifespan. I want to pause for a minute here and talk to you about Life Extension Ventures. It's the reason I'm doing this series for In the Know. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund dedicated to working towards the longevity of people and planet. The future of humanity depends on our planet surviving. And its potential can really only be unlocked if we focus on some of the technologies, some of the breakthrough science that's making it possible for us to live longer and better lives. Life Extension Ventures is a venture fund focused on supporting visionary founders that are working towards longevity of people and planet. It's the future of humanity that they're working on, and we want to back them. I spent a lot of time as a science person, as an academic, as a student, and then I spent even more time becoming a company builder and venture investor. And with Life Extension Ventures, I'm bringing both of those things together with my partner, Yaki Berenger. It's got a similar story. And we're out there finding folks who want to build companies that can really make a difference for human life. We'll need this planet if we want to survive, and we'll need to focus on these breakthrough technologies if we really want to unlock human potential. So here we are doing it and sharing with you this episode is uh, some of the breakthrough science that we've been learning about and trying to back. Absolute amount. And so a mouse that doubles its lifespan by living 30 days, if you told me I could do something to live 30 days longer, I would hardly care, is what you mean. That's right, yeah. So with nematode worms that live about three weeks, you can multiply their lifespan by at least five, and by certain genetic tricks by 10. You, no one's been able to get a normal mice to live more than, let's say, 70% longer than they normally would. Dogs, it's about 10%. With um, monkeys, it's a few percent if you're lucky. You get it. Oh, and then so when you're, by the time you get to humans, it's, it's nothing. And so calorie restriction, you think, could be as minimal as that. Let me finish this answer by very much pointing out one thing, that calorie restriction is good for health, and therefore its memetics are probably good for health as well. That um, the, the average lifespan, as opposed to the maximum lifespan, which is what we're really looking at if we think about aging, can be extended probably by a larger amount especially in animals like you and me who are not living in the lab with a controlled environment and who, you know, have a variably healthy lifestyle. Yeah, so avoid the car crashing into the bus, yeah? I mean, so can we move in that direction now? So, uh, all right, fine. You're not a huge advocate for all the pills that I have in my (laughs) medicine cabinet. I'm saying they have value. One just mustn't get it out of proportion. It's not the fountain of youth. Well, it sounds like it's 1%. I mean, if I listen to you properly. If you measure health span, it could be considerably more depending on your life. So there may be something that there are now these gene therapies and some of these more hardcore biotech things. They seem like they have a lot of promise. And let's forget about the uploading the whole brain somewhere else. I mean, because then we get into whether that is extending life or not. I mean, maybe it's consciousness or something, right? Indeed. And um, maybe then the question is, or rather to, to just sort of switch gears a little bit, 
you know, now that everyone's working on, on these longevity type things, like what, what do you think are going to be the first, like, or maybe it's already happened. What will we see this next one or two years, like really imminently that we should really be paying attention to? I mean, here you are, right? It's happened now. You've been working on it for ages. Now there's millions and many tens of millions being invested in longevity by people working on dogs and everything else. So is something happening soon? I guess in order to answer that, I have to start by going back to the fact that damage repair is intrinsically a divide and conquer approach, that we've got all these different types of damage accumulating in the body, any one of which can kill you more or less on schedule, however well we fix all the others, just as long as you, right? So there are some types of damage that are easier to fix than others. For example, if we look at the brain, if we just look at one particular type of damage in the brain, loss of cells, right? There's one disease, uh, Parkinson's disease, that is driven overwhelmingly by the loss of a particular type of neuron, the dopaminergic neurons that live in one particular part of the brain called the substantia nigra. There are already stem cell therapies in clinical trials to fix this by introducing dopaminergic precursor cells that will divide and differentiate to, um, to restore the cellularity and thus to restore the amount of dopamine. And this has been, uh, on the rare occasions when this has been done in the past, in the days when we didn't really know how to develop particular types of stem cell, occasionally, you know, it's, you know, people got lucky, and it works spectacularly well. But if you look at other aspects of cell loss in the brain, in the context of Alzheimer's disease, for example, or even stroke, then it's a bit different because cells need to be all over the brain. They need to be in a lot of different places. And if you inject cells just into one spot in the brain, they don't do what they do in the circulation. They sit there because basically the, the cerebrospinal fluid is too viscous to allow things to just diffuse. So in order to address that, people are, well, a, a group that I'm working with that we've just actually spun out a company on, are working with a really rather elaborate system where one genetically engineers the, the precursor cells so that initially they are not neuronal precursor cells at all. They behave like microglia, which are the immune cells of the brain. And those cells actively migrate around and you know, disperse. And after that has happened, then the idea is you kind of switch them into a state where they can become neurons. And so this is pretty elaborate, right? And you didn't have to do any of this for Parkinson's disease. This is just an illustration of, how, of the diversity of difficulty that exists, a spectrum of difficulty. So right now, of course, we have the situation where you know, some things are easy enough, a low enough hanging fruit that they've moved along quite fast. And that's where the private money is going. But you don't mean to say that Parkinson's were about to figure out how to inject these cells and get it done. I mean, is that what you're... I am actually saying that, yeah. This is one where we could really be talking about Parkinson's disease having been cured like three or four years from now because the clinical trials are really moving. Amazing. Yeah, uh, but definitely not, you know, the other things I mentioned. This is the same across the whole body, across all the types of damage that we're talking about. There are some things that are much harder than others. And the things that are easier are, of course, the ones in which one gets easier investment money, private sector money. And worse than that, the academic community, the academia does not pick up the slack because they have a completely different but equally strong motivation for short-termism of their own. Namely, journals like to publish positive results and not negative results. So in order to get your next grant application funded or your next promotion or whatever, you've got to publish in high-impact high places and you 
and are mm-hmm. choosing what to work on on that basis. Well, as do you, right? So you choose to work on certain things. And so let's see how you've been voting with your feet this last few years. Do you want to tell us that you want to name check one or two other ones that you've been working on? We at Sense Research Foundation have spun out half a dozen companies now. There's one that was initially focused, it's broadened a bit now, but it was initially focused on our approach to macular degeneration. It's called ICOR, I-C-H-O-R. There's another one called Revel Pharmaceuticals, which is focused on restoring the elasticity of arteries and such like, and the extra-tailor matrix. There's one called Covalent, which is looking at the elimination of a type of amyloid that has a different composition than amyloid in the brain in Alzheimer's. This is amyloid that accumulates in the heart, and it seems to be very important in the extreme elderly. So yeah, we've got quite a few of these. The most recent before Gleonics, Gleonics is the name of the company that's doing this thing I just mentioned. The one immediately before that is called Cyclarity, and it's focused on atherosclerosis. A very cool trick using a modification of a well-known drug called cyclodextrin to extract oxidized cholesterol from atherosclerotic plaques and thereby allow the body. So you are currently pursuing the record for the most companies co-founded and you plan to take it from George Church. I very much doubt that I will catch up. You're chasing. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's been going pretty well. But the point is there are still things that are considerably distant from investability. So one of the best ones is our mitochondrial mutations project. We want to put copies of the mitochondrial DNA into the nuclear DNA, modified in such a way that it still works. You know, that the proteins that are encoded are re-imported back into the mitochondrion. So uh, I don't know how much mitochondrial biology you know, but basically 99% of the proteins in a mitochondrion are already encoded in the nucleus and imported into the mitochondrion. And there's just 13 that are not and they're occurring in the mitochondrial DNA, turns out to be really tricky to uh, to fix that, which is basically why evolution never did it. But we've got tools that evolution... We're not as smart as evolution, but we've got more tools. So we've been working on that for quite a while. This idea of basically obviating, not stopping mutations in the mitochondrial DNA from happening, but making them harmless by making the proteins come in from the outside. This is an idea that half a dozen different people have had independently. It was first worked on in the 1980s. Everyone gave up. I'm not a quitter. So I, I kind of revived this thing and brought in one or two new ideas. And um, we've definitely, we're not there yet by a long way, but we've definitely got far further along than most people, well, almost anybody thought was possible. It's a viable approach, but it won't be investable for a little while yet. Well, on this topic, right, of uninvestable and the short-termism perhaps of both folks that are working in what should be basic science and then, of course, the, the venture-backed folks on uninvestable. Let me ask you the shallower question that, I mean, There's so much going on across all these fields and things have been changing in the tooling and infrastructure, you know, that people have models of neurons, they have models of whole brain areas, there's simulation, virtualization, there's data, there's sharing, there's machine learning. I mean, are you finding that the work is moving into a more computationally driven mode? Are there directions, either tools or companies that you think might make a valuable contribution that are really just writing software? I mean, going all the way back to where you came from, writing software. Totally there are, yes. I mean, I wouldn't say driven. I would say that, you know, the slightly weaker way that you put it, that these tools are getting more and more sophisticated and more and more useful. So uh, probably the the company of that nature that's at the top of the tree right now is in silico medicine, which is run by my great friend Alex Oberonkoff. So they are using state-of-the-art AI to develop drugs uh, against aspects of aging. But there's plenty of others. There's another very successful company called BioAge, which is, again, uh, run by a great friend of mine, Kristen Fortney. They are 
a hybrid company now. They have their own wet lab as well for developing things. But they started out in bioinformatics, which is where she started out. And, and there's more. There's a company in the UK that I'm quite fond of called Nuchido, N-U-C-H-I-D-O. It's quite small. Not many people have heard of it yet, but it's pursuing a very innovative approach to essentially network biology that, uh, that again, is you know, coming up with very interesting results in terms of drug discovery. So yes, plenty of this going on. And of course, the key thing I have to emphasize is that we must not forget the, the, the contribution of work which is not focused on aging per se, but is relevant across the whole of biology and biomedicine. So, of course, the classic example, and rightly so, is AlphaFold, the program that has more or less solved the protein folding problem after all these decades. Yeah, wow. Okay, so last topic for you, last topic for you. If you're not visionary enough on a typical day, maybe let me tug at that theme. The oldest person in the world is around 120 years old. The oldest person that ever lived, I guess, is around that age. Our uh, average age, if you were born a while back, I guess, is 80-something in rich countries. And if you were born today, we don't know, but maybe it's a little closer to 120. Yeah. So there's like a, some parameters, some boundaries. And we're doing all this work. We're making all these breakthroughs. The nematode worm can live three times longer. Like, what are we talking about when we talk about longevity science? Are we talking about living on average to 120 and then we all fall off a cliff and keeping health span on the side? I, I just want to know if we might live to 150 or 200 on a regular basis at some point this century. I mean, is it totally insane? First of all, we have to very, I have to state very strongly something that is often just like, you know, either swept under the carpet or distorted. Lifespan is a side effect of health span. So I just do medical research. I'm interested in keeping people as healthy as possible, however long ago they were born. And the consequence of that will be that on average, people will live longer. The idea that there is some kind of magic, you know, clock going on in our body, which is off limits to medicine, that's complete nonsense. If we live healthily longer, we will live longer in total. Just that's how it is. Therefore, as you say, the current life expectancy is something uh, in wealthy countries, something something slightly over 80. The life expectancy on the, the entire world combined is more than 70, has been for the past five or seven years, and is still going up. The, the poorer countries in the world, the developing world are definitely catching up. That's good news in the sense that, you know, fewer people are dying of malaria in infancy and so on. But it's, of course, got the same consequence in the developing world that it's already had in the developed world, that there is this um, epidemic of age-related chronic progressive conditions. And that's kind of, you know, because they're age-related and chronic and progressive, it means that people are sick for a long time, lots of suffering. So we've really got to fix that as much as we can, as soon as we can. So then the question is, you're asking really about what happens next. We could have... Um, you know, in the in the next maybe, um, let's say, 15, 20 years, a world in which people could stay healthy for maybe 30 years longer than they currently can if they, if they had therapies, state-of-the-art therapies. And that would mean they would live 30 years longer. So, you know, if lifespan today is in the rich countries in the 80s, what's the healthy span? Do people start getting sick in their 70s or 60s? I, I haven't thought about that number. Of course, the difficulty with answering that question is one has to decide what the definition of healthy is, you know, where the threshold is, how bad. You, you know. So, and, and there are lots of ways of doing that. My favoured ones revolve around activities of daily living. So, you know, can you bathe yourself? Can you do your own shopping? Things like that. And of course, the, there's, a, there's a hierarchy of those activities. Some of them are harder than others. And so, again, it's a question of, you know, which subset of those, how severe are they? Some people use the term instrumental activities of daily living, which are the more difficult things like shopping, 
and as opposed to basic activities of daily living, which are the uh, uh, things like bathing yourself. So, yeah, I mean, you can come up with any number you like on that. And that's actually why there is still a completely sterile debate going on that goes on that will never go away about whether we are, in fact, expanding or contracting morbidity, the part at the end of life where you're sick. Yeah, but so whatever, because we're turning it more into a box instead of a curve at the end, right? So, you know, if wherever the health span date, if the, if the health span date is 68 years old, you're saying, oh, well, it could be plus 30. You could still be doing the shopping at 98. You know? That's exactly right. Yes. The point mm -hmm. is that any deviations there are from the lockstep increase of the two things together is a second order effect. You know, you can forget about it. All right, so but then the thing you have to think about once you look into the future, maybe 15 years from now, where we might have this step of a couple of decades of additional life, you have to ask, you know, what are, are people going to be satisfied with that? Is it going to be in some sense inherently a completely different problem to get the next 20 years? And so on. And of course, the answer is no to both of those questions. So there is going to be, you know, continued efforts, which will have continued progressive success to get the next 10 years and the 10 years after that and so on. Oh, so it's just a really practical, common sensey. just like we just keep pushing both the numbers. There's no magic. I mean, there's no magic in your world. And that's where it gets interesting, because the question you have to ask then is how rapidly will we be pushing up these numbers? And, you know, so there's a very famous statistic that says for the past 160 years, if you look at the best performing country in the world for each year, and you ask what was the life expectancy, the average lifespan, it's gone up ridiculously linearly by about two and a half years per, per decade, three months per year. That's tailed off now in the, in the top countries because the top country, Japan, has more or less leveled off. But um, the point is that it was definitely less than one year per year, a lot less. But it might not be less in the future. We might be able to use medicine to um, you know, be going fast. That leads to the concept that I, nearly 20 years ago now, coined uh, the term longevity escape velocity, where basically you get to the point where pushing things forward faster than time is passing. And so people are simply not getting biologically older at all. Longevity escape velocity, LEV. I mean, the irony, of course, about our venture fund called Life Extension Ventures, it has the same acronym. <laughs> I did kind of spot that. So that's been a term that's been out there for quite a long time now. Ray Kurzweil, around the same time, started talking about living long enough to live forever. That's why he talked about these various bridges. Same concept, of course. And uh, the only real question is, how far away is that? Because once we get there, once we reach longevity escape velocity, there's no way on earth that we will ever fall back below it. The reason that's true is because, first of all, you know, progress always accelerates. But also, the further we get to having 100% completely perfect damage repair using medicine, the longer we have to get closer still, you know, because the, you know, or if the only thing that's accumulating is the residual ultra difficult damage that we haven't yet figured out. How to, right. So we don't even have to speed up. We can actually slow down. It's still good enough. Right. And so, yeah. So somebody else came along with the term Methuselarity, which is like, <laughs> uh, which will be the point at which we reach longevity. Aubrey, I cannot possibly thank you enough. It's been an incredible conversation. And I think, you know, our, everyone listening. Wow. Great pleasure. Really amazing. Great pleasure. Really amazing. Rock and roll. Till next time. Thank you so much.